This episode of the CE Podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In today's episode, we're going to talk about issues of capacity. We'll touch on powers of attorney a little bit, but really we're going to focus on the capacity questions that come up earlier in a relationship, primarily with elderly clients, but not exclusively with elderly clients. It's something we'll touch on a little bit as we work through this. Our uh, interviewees today, we're going to talk to Derek, and some of you will remember Derek from earlier episodes. Derek's going to be talking about an elder abuse situation that's a little bit fraught. And Dawn, Dawn's going to be talking about how she has, in particular, approached the issue of maybe not declining capacity, but a client who has expressed concerns about getting some help. So today's episode will be approved for one professional responsibility credit with the Financial Planning Canada. It will be approved for one credit in all insurance jurisdictions, including an accident and sickness credit in Alberta. And as usual, it will also be approved by Advocus. It will have an IAS number, so you can use that towards your Advocus credit requirements. color for today's episode is white. The color for today's episode is white. Before we hear from Derek, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about the question of capacity. This is an issue that becomes very difficult sometimes for financial advisors and I can completely understand why. I know sometimes when we present this idea in class, I actually facilitate the update training on a volunteer basis for the local advocacy chapter here in Edmonton. And one of the questions that comes up here, we just discussed this capacity issue and a couple people in the room said, well, hang on a second here. I'm not a psychologist or a doctor. I can't be expected to assess capacity. But Really, and this is a challenging one, and I would suggest that you reach out to the lawyers in your life and talk to them about this. As usual, nothing in this podcast is intended as legal or tax advice. Everything here is intended to give you your first off continuing education credits and then to give you the material to ask the appropriate questions to the appropriate people. So just going back to this, the question of capacity and who's responsible to assess capacity. Well, really, the financial advisor, like anybody else who's in a professional relationship like this, anybody else who's taking other people's money in exchange for advice, you are expected to be in a sort of ongoing process of assessing capacity. 
Now, I would suggest that you probably do most of what you need to do here, maybe all of what you need to do already. There's one little step that I'm going to suggest that you can add to your regular processes in terms of capacity, and I'll get to that in a moment. The first thing to recognize is that capacity is not a black or white situation or an on or off switch. Capacity is really a sliding scale. And we see this with clients at all ages. This is not exclusive to older clients. When we assess capacity, we're assessing somebody's ability to understand the concepts that are placed in front of them. And you can see this certainly with maybe some of your younger clients where they might be good income earners, they might make good money, but they may not deal in complex financial concepts. They may not want to touch that kind of stuff. And I would suggest that that client has good capacity, but you might note that that person has maybe limited capacity for more complex financial concepts. So it's not just a question of do they have capacity, but rather how much capacity do they have. As folks age, and it's not exclusive to aging, we can see this with things like medication. So you'll see younger people sometimes where they have problems with medication, and I'll talk about a story like that in my interview with Don in the second set of interviews here. So we have a question around health, or is there something in somebody's life circumstances that changes that can cause a temporary loss of capacity. Not all losses of capacity or degradations of capacity are necessarily permanent. We have to think about how we track this question of capacity. And this is the thing that I think most folks could add to their process. I think right now, all of you that would be listening to this, you have a conversation with your client and you probably have a pretty good idea about how that client is picking up the details you're putting down in that conversation. So you have this discussion with the client and the client comes back and they are able to paraphrase what you said. They're able to explain what you just said. They have a good understanding of what happened. Perfect. I would suggest documenting that to say, yeah, I did an informal capacity discussion with this client and this client was 10 out of 10 on the capacity scale or something like that. And what that will allow you to do then is if you ever end up in a question of declining capacity, you can look back to your prior notes and say, oh, you know what, for the last three years, this client was always 10 out of 10. Now they're an 8 out of 10, still good capacity, but I have to note that I've got that declining capacity. And I would suggest that that type of record keeping or that type of documentation would be right in the wheelhouse of document, document, document. Now, you might talk that over with your compliance team, and I think it's not a bad thing to discuss with your compliance team. Certainly, you don't want to be taking notes that could cause more trouble for you than what they could save. So that is something to consider. Okay, let's hear what Derek has to say. You're going to hear Derek talk about a very difficult situation, one of these scenarios where the advisor suspects that there might be some elder abuse happening, but ultimately there's really sometimes nothing you can do here other than to lose the client and potentially really let the client assets go to another financial institution where there might be more tolerance for that elder abuse. Good morning, Derek. Thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. You had mentioned when we were chatting before 
that you have some recent experience with scenario where there was a concern around elder abuse? Yeah, it was it was interesting because I actually got my elder planning council designation because I have a lot of clients who are older, right? I bought a book and it ended up being a lot of clients who are, you know, above 60, which is not that much older, but it's, you know, they're young elders. And, you know, I have clients who are in their 70s and 80s that are older elders. And so I got it because I felt that it was important that I had an idea of what their life was like or what the challenges were. And getting your EPC designation definitely helps with that. Just understanding what is an elderly client looking to accomplish and what does an elderly client get caught up when they're trying to accomplish these things. And I mean, your life definitely changes when you get older, right? When you're no longer planning for retirement, instead you're in retirement, it's a different shift to things. So I felt that if I got my elder planning, I could at least show people that I'm not looking to just say, I know everything. I want to put my money where my mouth is and at least have something that shows that I've done some research to try to get on that side of them because I'm a little bit younger than them, a little bit younger than the elder planning, the elderly clients. So I don't want them to assume that I'm just some brash guy that thinks I know everything because I don't, but I do like to think that I do the, do the work to try to get to know them a little better. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's real value in the EPC designation and I hear that a lot from folks who are not in that generation, but work with that generation, to taking the EPC is brings real I value. Actually was, I was quite surprised at how much I got from it, because I thought it was just going to be, you know, this is a person who's old, they need to save this much money, they need to use all these government, you know, benefits they have for them, or changing RSPs to a RIF, you know, like your typical elderly planning stuff. But I found it to be quite interesting, because they talked a lot about just the way that you know, elders are not respected as much as the rest of us because they have that whole ageism, as they call it, where because they're older than us, we feel that they aren't as educated as us for whatever reason. And or even just the, the concept of the majority of people who are elderly are women who, if you think about it, makes perfect sense. Women who marry a guy who's 10 years older than them, it's more likely that the guy's going to die before the woman. Plus, guys don't live as old as women do. So now we're in this situation where we have all these elderly women who aren't educated because they spent time in the home and they didn't go out and you know pursue their careers and continue to, to move themselves forward because they were supporting their family. Now we have this situation where we have these uneducated and like they've never dealt with money. And like, it's just that scenario. It's so that's what we're dealing with. And that's where you really have to appreciate that there's a lot of these elderly women don't have the confidence to deal with their finances and that's where they they make mistakes or they just have somebody take advantage of them because it's really easy because they just don't have the know-how just stop that from happening they don't even know they're doing something wrong for that matter so you mentioned that you did have an experience then where maybe one of your clients was concerned about elder abuse i've actually had a couple where well, we stopped, I've stopped a couple of them where a client was like, this looks like the greatest thing ever. I'm going to do this. And it's like, well, let's look deeper into it. I'm not saying no, whatever. And we got, we found out further that, you know, it was like, like typical elder abuse. It was a family member trying to do something that wasn't necessarily in the client's best interest. Long story short, they're trying to steal their grandparents' money. And you don't want to think that that could happen. But apparently that's where most of elder abuse happens is with family members that have the ability because, you know, you name somebody as a power of attorney and then that person, they have their, like the person doing the elder abuse has their own issues. They have their own financial issues. And that's a real easy thing to do where grandpa has 
$300,000 and I need to just borrow $1,000 to make my car payment this month, next month, the month after. All of a sudden it becomes a normal thing for them, right? And that's elder abuse right there. So, I mean, you have to, you just have to notice it and make sure that the, that the other person is aware of it and then they can take actions to, to save themselves. In cases where you become aware of it, how did it happen that you became aware? Was it, did the client ask you about a specific withdrawal or did the client ask you about something their child had told them or their grandchild had told them? No, no, no. Um, what I'm thinking about, I had a client who was doing like $800 a month extra withdrawals, extra every single month. And I'm like, what is this about? Like, this is not, we've been, I've been dealing with this client for like 30 years and all of a sudden they just started like, they always did everything by the book, exactly the way that it was planned and everything else, right? Um, they're like your Saskatchewan farmers that work too hard and always want to save their money and everything. I'm sure you understand. And so when they started doing things out of the norm, you know, my spidey senses tingled a little bit. And you're just like, I just ask questions. You just, you just get more information. And then you find out that, you know, said grandson and his wife lost their house and then moved in with them. And, you know, grandma wanted to help them. and started pulling out and I think that they got away with it. like they ended up redeeming over about a year and a half two years about fifty thousand dollars of this person's retirement funds and it was like that like it was just it wasn't a one-time thing it was just this thing and that thing and this thing and you just and you go back and you know you review your client's account and you're like this is not going to be sustainable for you I mean you have three hundred thousand dollars but you're pulling out fifty thousand every year and a half to for whatever the hell, heck you're pulling it out for, what's going on? And then that's kind of where you find out what's going on. And I get it because at the same time, an elderly client wants to support their family. They want to they want to be there for their family, but the clients have to take care of themselves before they take care of someone else. So like they say that the, the airplane, when you when there's no air, make sure you put your own mask on before you help your children, like that whole thing, because you pass out, your children aren't going to put it on themselves and not going to put one on you kind of thing. So, and the, the exact same thing goes when it comes to your financial planning. With elders, they have to make sure that they're taking care of themselves because in the end, you don't, as an elder, I'm sure you don't want to be that burden on your on your family, right? You want to make sure that you're taking care of them and not the other way around if possible. In this particular instance, when you broached this with the client, how did they respond? Well, they got they didn't get defensive. They just were... Well, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm like, this is why we're doing it. And then, you know, you sit down and you're like, okay, I'm entering into dad mode. And I always say that like dad mode saying like, I have to, I have to, you know, be more than just a friend of yours. I have to, you know, make sure that you're aware of what's going on. And you just sit down with them and you show them that like, because of all these things that are happening, because your grandkids aren't, like they're not working because they're sitting here freeloading off of you. This is what's going to happen to you. And you talk about your retirement savings is now 10 years shorter than it was before, or five years shorter, whatever it was. You have to make sure that they're aware of what's going on. Like I wouldn't approach it as like your child is abusing you because once you do that, they're going to get defensive behind their family or over you. But you want them to be aware of what's going on, how this is affecting them. Because if they're not aware of it, then they're going to end up without anything in the end and when you have a couple of kids here that are just draining your resources they're going to take off and go take care of themselves but you're the elder that has no means to help yourself further so 
what happens to your life when you're up against that wall and have nowhere to move and no one's there to help you. Now, in this case, does this couple continue to provide some support or have they cut off all support? The two kids, the last I heard, they moved out. They had three kids of their own. And that's where they had this big issue because they ended up getting evicted from their house. And that's when they moved into grandma. They moved out, went and rented on their own. But I haven't heard too, too much back. Long story short, my client ended up going elsewhere, which is too bad. But I can only, you can only do what all you can do, right? Like, I'm going to do my best to help you. I'm going to do my best to save that elderly client. But at the end of the day, it's still up to them. Do you think they moved because they were moving to an advisor who wasn't going to give them grief about that scenario? Yeah, exactly that. It was just too bad because I like to think that as an advisor, my job is to help you think about things that you don't want to think about, to help put reality in front of you as opposed to just making life lactatasical and you can just, nothing's going to matter ever, right? This is reality. This is the way things go. And if you run out of money, you run out of money. No one's going to be there to save you. And then if you're not responsible enough, as an advisor, if I'm not showing you the way that it is, what good am I? Really, like if I'm not going to help you avoid these mistakes, what good am I? You're paying me for nothing. So in this case, these clients had capacity. They still had full capacity to make decisions and so forth. No oh, absolutely. I, I haven't had this scenario with the client that did the uh, LOA and had the, the power of attorney take advantage. And that hasn't happened to me yet. But I'm, I suspect that at some point it will, because it's actually a really easy scenario for someone to get away with elder abuse, right? So without that power of attorney, with the client still having legal capacity, do you think that the kids were exerting some influence? Or do you think it was just that the clients decided that that was the route they were going to go because it was the path of least resistance? I, I think that the kids did have influence over them. I don't know if I would say that it was do this or we're going to do something negative towards. I don't know if it was like that, but I think it was more like, we can't do this without you. And so if you're ever a parent, you know that like all you want is to take care of your kids. But at the same time, you have to look at bigger picture than that. If you're always there to help your kids, what happens when you're gone, right? Like what happens there? So sometimes it's a tough love scenario. Looking back on that scenario, do you think there's anything that you could have done differently where you still could have been the responsible voice and maybe those clients might have? I really don't think so, to be honest with you. I mean, I did my best to educate the client as to the ramifications of the decisions they're making. At the end of the day, we aren't our clients. Even if we can see that our clients are making the worst mistakes ever, or if we see that a client is being abused with an elder abuse scenario, at the end of the day, if the client is fully with it, it's 100% their decision. So who am I to tell a client, you can't do this, you can't do that? Like, it's not my choice, it's their choice. And they save the money so they can use it for whatever they want. All I can really do is just make sure that they're very well aware of what the ramifications of these decisions are going to be. So with those clients, was there anything on the compliance side that you did that was unusual in that take additional notes or notify your compliance department, anything like that? When I look at compliance, I think that's more advisors making sure they're taking care of themselves. <laughs> so yeah, if I found something like that, like I have obviously reported at the head office what I thought was going on. I made very meticulous notes because you got to make sure that, you know, your, your house is in order as well. Because if that client passes away and these kids go, you let someone get away with this, 
because of these grandkids or whatever, you don't want to be a part of that. So if you have everything where it's, you know, it's cr- like all your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted and everything else, then I think that that's really all you can do for compliance. But yeah, I wouldn't say I did it. Well, I guess that's more than I do for, I guess, no, actually, I don't think that is more than I would pretty much do that for all my clients anyways. But, you know, you just want to make sure that you're, you're clear about the problems and you're reporting to the people what potentially could be happening or what is happening and, you know, let it, let it take its course from head office as well. That's what head office is there for. Okay, so that was Derek talking about a really tough situation, but I would suggest that probably Derek handled it well. It's hard to know for sure without seeing exactly how he interacted with the client. You might ask whether or not he did everything he could do earlier in the relationship to set this up for a better long-term outcome. One of the things that I think is worth considering here is when you have a power of attorney, I would like to meet with that attorney, the person who will take on the role, as early as possible in the relationship. So I would prefer that my clients who have power of attorney documents that aren't executed yet, just the one that's waiting until that person loses capacity, I would really prefer that that person gets me an introduction to the attorney. It might be nice to have a meeting where you sit down with the client, sit down with the attorney, and you talk through how this relationship is going to work and make sure that the attorney understands the client's financial plan. And then as a follow-on to that, when the client does lose capacity or if the client loses capacity, then you already have that relationship with the attorney. Now, regardless of whether or not you already have that relationship with the attorney, one of the other things that I would suggest here is when you have that attorney take over, so when the power of attorney has been executed, the attorney will then bring you the power of attorney document, hopefully, and whatever supporting documentation there is, hopefully. I would suggest if you have any reason at all to question this, you absolutely need to take that power of attorney document and the supporting documentation to your compliance department and allow them to make the assessment. I don't think that you as the advisor want to be stepping into the shoes of the lawyer where you're making the determination about whether or not the client has an executed power of attorney. I don't think that's appropriate for financial advisors. So you gather all that information. Once it's confirmed that the attorney really is legally in the position of being the attorney now, I would suggest it's appropriate to onboard that person much like an initial planning engagement. So bring the attorney into the office, have a conversation with them about the financial plan, have a conversation with them about what assets there are and how you've been treating the donor or the grantor, the person who lost capacity and now is no longer able to deal with their affairs. And that might just set the tone for the relationship here. I find it is very common where we have the attorney take over And maybe the advisor hasn't been able to set the tone for the relationship. And now it becomes very challenging when the attorney brings an unusual request or when the attorney brings a request that the advisor might not be comfortable with. It's very challenging to manage that. I don't know exactly, again, how Derek treated that, but I think this is something worth considering. And I think we all have a lot to learn about dealing with clients where there are questions of diminished capacity or lost capacity altogether. 
be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, uh, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you will have to sign up and you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. This episode of the CE Podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Now, before we get into our discussion with Don, I just want to go over a concept here, and you're going to hear Don talk about this quite a bit. This is something I've seen lots now. This was a topic at the Financial Planning Standards Council Ethics Breakfast in November of 2018. And this was also a key issue in the update training delivered by Advocus in the 2019 update sessions. And I will give uh, props here. You'll hear me talk about them in the interview as well. I'll give props to Bridgehouse Asset Management. Carolyn, the CEO there, has been very concerned with issues of mental health and declining capacity. And I would suggest Bridgehouse has been a leader in this field. In fact, I will actually include a link to some documents from Bridgehouse Asset Management in the show notes for today's episode. Anyways, the issue here that comes up is not power of attorney, but rather a trusted third party or a third party contact or what's in New Brunswick being called a safe harbor provisions. And this is somebody that a financial advisor or somebody else in an advisory role can reach out to and have some communication with if they find that the client might be making decisions that aren't in their best interests or if there's a question around whether the client still has capacity or if they feel like maybe it's time for the client to go see a family physician for that capacity assessment. So that sort of trusted third party would be not a power of attorney and not to the extent of a power of attorney. They would be sort of a, I call it a middle ground or a stopgap before we get to the power of attorney. Okay, let's hear what Dawn has to say then, and you'll hear that she's very relationship-focused, and I think she's well-suited to handle the kinds of questions that are going to come up with aging clients. Good morning, Dawn, and thanks very much for joining us today. Good morning. Dawn is a financial planner based here in Edmonton, and she is insurance licensed and carries her CFP designation as well. And Don, you said you do sort of two lines of business that are your primary focus. I know you deal a lot with business owners, and we've chatted about that, everything from their group benefits right through to their investment needs. And then also what we're going to primarily talk about today is you have a lot of clients who are deep into retirement, Don. Is that a fair description? That is. That is fair. 
Yeah, I really appreciate you helping us out. So the reason that we're having this conversation actually is a couple of weeks ago, Don had emailed me with a question that is actually something that came up at the Financial Planning Standards Council, then Ethics Breakfast back in November. And I thought, hey, this is a good chance to talk about this. A lot of people won't be exposed to this idea. So maybe before we get into the actual question, Don, I'd just like to go through a few sort of background discussion points here. And my first is around capacity. And I'm curious to know whether it's been a regular occurrence for you to run into client scenarios where there has been a capacity concern? I would say not directly. I haven't had clients who have had capacity concerns up until recently. My frame of reference, I suppose, is, uh, well, I guess my first frame of reference is that my parents, uh, my own parents, my mom was diagnosed with dementia about four years ago. And we've been managing it. It's been fine. And they have a little tiny portfolio. And so my dad has a pension, so things are, are fine for them. They haven't primarily needed a lot of advice about their investments per se. But I've been finding in recent years since that time, and maybe it's because I'm a lot more aware of it now, but my clients are asking or expressing concerns around how do I manage my own parents fading uh, mentally? You know, we're a little worried. You know, what can we do? That sort of thing. But uh, it, it's become front and center this year when I took on a client who was unhappy with her previous advisor, I was required to get to know her. So what I uh, did was I spent about three hours with her the first meeting and another two and a half hours worth of the second. And it's become apparent that she's uh, still reeling from the death of her uh, professional spouse. He was in business for a long time. He had an advisor background. And she's been a widow for about five years. She's uh, in her late 70s. We're just trying to make some changes, some really small changes to her portfolio so that she can fade off into the sunset knowing that she's got an adequate amount of income and there's not going to be too many changes. It's, it's been a challenge, though, because I get mixed messages from her. And she has finally said, you know, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if my son could get involved with uh, this process. Uh, and that leads me to trying to um, make sure that he is included in a way that doesn't really disclose any details about his mother's affairs, her health, uh, or the like. That's why I asked you a little while ago, about: is there something you'd recommend or a best practice that I could implement in my own practice about trying to make sure that we do this in a, in a good way? And if I recall correctly, Don, there was an additional complication with the son, wasn't there? There is. He's not resident in Canada. So um, that is another area of concern uh, as a planner uh, in taking instruction from a client and or potentially taking instruction from her son if there is a power of attorney put in place. Right. So we're not at the power of attorney stage here yet, but I assume then that she would look to name him as the, the prospect of attorney on a POA document. That's safe to say. She actually brought this up in conversation. You know, is there any way I could uh, ask you to talk to my son about this? This is where we get into, and I'll delve into this a little bit more outside the scope of the interview. So I'll have some explanatory notes to go along with this. But this is where we do run into a potential compliance and licensing issue. Because as you rightly say, if he ends up taking over as the attorney, then you end up with that potentially deemed non-resident person. And what I would just caution here for the folks listening is that 
whatever answer I give here will be dependent on your licensing regime. So if you're on the MFDA side or on the IROC side or on the insurance side, those are all going to have different outcomes. And it may be necessary, and I would suggest if you're on the MFDA or IROC side, you're likely to get a fairly clean answer from your compliance department. It might not be an answer you like, but it's likely a clean answer. I find on the insurance side, and I'm sure you've had this experience now, Don, on the insurance side for both insurance and seg funds, that the answer tends to be a little bit more vague. Can you go through your efforts to track down an answer to this, Don? There does seem to be a lot of gray area or area that leaves things subject to interpretation, and that's the frustrating part for an advisor that's looking to act ethically in the best interest of the client and yet make sure that you're covered at your own desk. In having a look around, I don't want to say that any resource or source of expertise that I've found is deficient, but I haven't been able to find a firm answer about what to do or how to deal with this so far. And I know the one thing that we talked about was not so much around the power of attorney, but rather leading up to the power of attorney. So right now, she's just looking for some help for sort of a sober second thought, I think, Don. Yeah, that's very fair, Jason. So I had suggested to her, I've given her some simple, straightforward comment on a couple of things by email. And she's good with email. And she had said, could you please send this to my son? And I said to her by email, why don't you just forward it to your son? Anyhow, she said, well, I'll I'll give you permission to, to send this to my son so that he can weigh in. So that's what we have done so far is just correspond back and forth by email. And I've made it very clear to him that I can't take investment advice or instruction from him. What we have agreed to do is at the time I have the next meeting with his mom is that he will simply phone in and be present by telephone. I think in a case like that, I would be a lot less concerned about a scenario where maybe the son is exercising some inappropriate influence over his mother if you had them both come into the office together. So if you have a situation where, and I don't know if you've had this, I I don't imagine, but where you've had the mother just bring a child with them, I think that that has to be handled a little bit differently, right? I imagine that that would be more of a fraught scenario. You know, duress is an interesting thing. I It would be um, interesting watching the body language between the two of them, obviously. I mean, I'm very fortunate in my practice so far. I can say that I deal with all three generations, you know, the, the, the very senior retirees, the, the 50-somethings and the 20, 30-somethings in a few scenarios in my practice and so far and everybody gets along and I've never had a scenario where there's any animosity between generations so far. So this is very interesting. And like I say, I, up until uh, 90 days ago, I, I didn't know this woman at all. So here we are, she's in her senior years and she's coming to me and I'm trying to do an assessment of whether or not I feel she knows what she's doing. So that's why we're proceeding very carefully. It's surprising to me, actually, Don, you said that your first two meetings ran the first at three hours and the second at two and a half hours. I'm curious about how much you feel like the client absorbed in that time. Do you feel like that's necessary to get the type of rapport and gather the information you need? It feels like a lot of time sitting with that client, and I'm I'm wondering if you can comment about that a little bit. I feel in the initial meeting with any client, it's very important to do a lot of listening just in order to find out what they like, who they are, what their background is, and for them to get comfortable with me as an advisor. So during the first meeting, we chatted. I asked some questions about her background. She did a lot of talking. I took a lot of notes. 
took some source documents back away with me so that I could, I made no recommendations at that point. It was just uh, a matter of getting hold of some of the things that she had on file because I don't have a file on her at all started and then putting some thought into it after I took those items back to the office about how it is that I was going to present or talk to her or what I was going to position her for in meeting number two, which was also a very long meeting. And again, more listening. I brought an agenda. I walked her through her copy. She initialed the things that we talked about. I initialed beside her. And I left her with her source documents in meeting number two and a few basic recommendations along with some marching orders to come back to the office so that we could then have meeting number three, which is scheduled in a week's time, where her son, as it turns out, will be on the phone while we talk about that and I make some specific recommendations about what I'd like to do with her portfolio. Now, with that relatively long initial meeting, is that typical for your clients or do you find with your older clients that you're more prone to have a longer meeting? If I don't know them, then I take my time with the first meeting. It's not unusual for that first meeting to go two hours where it's just we need to find out whether or not we like one another. I need for them to learn something about me. So I'd like at the end for them to have started the progression from just knowing me to trusting me. So that's why the first meeting is typically long. And given the son's involvement here, you know, you're maybe closing in on the point where it's time to start packaging up recommendations. I'm curious to know how you'll package up those recommendations relative to other clients. Does the fact that you have the son involved allow you to maybe introduce a little bit more complexity or do you keep everything at the level where you know that the client will have a good understanding and you sort of almost ignore the fact that the son's involved? I'm very mindful that in working with a client that I need to deal with them at their level or at a level that they are comfortable with. I know that people in the financial services industry are terrible typically for jargon. So I cut out all of that when I deal with someone who's a senior and just talk in terms of concepts that they will get. Now, in this case, the son seems reasonably well-versed in financial language. And so he's asked for just some explanations about, well, why would you take money from, say, a TFSA first or an RSP or, you know, tell me about the theory associated with that. So I'm giving him more an education quietly behind the scenes, but still being mindful that my instructions must come from his mom. That makes a lot of sense. And it's always going to be that trade-off. Now, thinking about power of attorney, does the client right now have a power of attorney document written and name the son as the prospective attorney? I believe they don't have that yet. So I assume that'll be part of your regular set of recommendations. That's safe to say. Um, you know, the thing about capacity is not knowing, and this, I, like I say, is with my mom, you just don't know at what point who has dementia and is advanced. It's pretty obvious now that she doesn't have capacity, but it's a very interesting window um, of time knowing that you have capacity, but that you won't. So, you know, where this woman that I'm working with now, who's in her late 70s, she seems like she still has capacity to be living on her own, paying her bills, making some good basic day-to-day decisions, but um, about more sophisticated concepts like money management and portfolio allocation, I'm not quite sure uh, when she will lose interest and her capacity to make those sorts of decisions, uh, given her timeline, obviously, The recommendations are going to be very straightforward and low risk, but I have thought that at a minimum going forward with my elderly clients, and I'm not sure when that will start, what the cutoff is for that, but that I will ask them to name an individual 
with whom I could reach out and say, you know, I'm a little worried about my client, fill in the name. Would you maybe go have coffee with this person and see what you think? So that's one of the best practices that I'm thinking about integrating into what I do when I'm working with seniors going forward. And that very much mirrors what I saw from the Financial Planning Standards Council at the Ethics Breakfast back in November of 2018. They had, and I was really impressed, uh, Carol Lind from Bridgehouse Asset Management. And this is somebody I would suggest it's worth reaching out to on these issues of capacity. And uh, Carol presented this concept of exactly what you're describing, Don. Get consent from the client to have somebody you can call up. They're not taking investment instruction or whatever. It's just somebody exactly as you described. Can you call your mom and see how things are going? Or can you have coffee with your dad and see how things are going? Uh, the other thing I want to touch on here, Don, that I thought you bring up an excellent point here. Capacity is not a black or white issue. It really is this sliding scale of capacity where you know your 35 year old business owner client don has maybe they're sharp and they understand everything right away and maybe for an older client and it's not exclusive to older clients i have a follow-on question about this but maybe for your older client maybe they're still sharp it just might take a couple more minutes explaining a concept or you might want to verify that can you talk maybe about how you ensure that comprehension with your uh, clients where you might be concerned about capacity I agree with you completely, Jason. Some people uh, make decisions on a snap, uh, regardless of age, and but it tends to slow down a little bit as people get older. I think they just understand also that they have less time to recover from making mistakes, so they're a little more careful. But about understanding, I simply try and write things down so that if they need to come back to it at a later point in time, they can pick up the last memo that I left for them. It will show them that they initialed the concept or the recommendation, so that at least they have something where they can open up their file and look for themselves and say, you know what, clearly I understood it at the time, because there's my initial right next to that line item. So that's what I'm trying to do, is just leave them an opportunity to go back and review what we talked about during the meeting in some basic language. And is that a follow-on email that you would provide afterwards too? How do you get that note back to the client? Oftentimes, it's just, I know that if I'm going to go into a meeting with a client where Honestly, the visiting takes up most of the discussion. They really like to have someone to visit with. It's just that there's maybe a couple of steps in there where I need to get some direction as their advisor. And so I make sure that when I go into a meeting with someone who's a retiree or very senior, that I bring two copies. You know, we're going to cover items one, two, and three. And as we go through them, I get them to initial or sign off in some way. I leave that with them. I take a copy. And oftentimes, I'll recap with a quick email that says, you know, it was lovely to see you. This is the sort of thing that we talked about it about. And pursuant to our discussion, I'll be moving forward with that. And just to ask them to acknowledge receipt of the email. I think that's a very common practice today. It's uh... I think what worth doing. Now you talked about dementia in your own family and you talk about potential diminished capacity with this client. I think one of the things that we can be aware of is that depending on the nature of the loss of capacity, it can manifest in a number of different ways. And I don't know if that's something you've looked into at all, Don, where you, you know, if it's Alzheimer's, for example, Alzheimer's is well known for having masking behaviors and anger outbursts. I don't know if you can comment about what you've seen there at all, Don. I haven't seen anything like that. And, you know, I'm not an expert on dementia or mental illness, but I guess the bottom line from an advisor's point of view is you could be held to account uh, later by either the client who 
hasn't understood what you've done on their behalf, or in particular, family members, the next generation, oh my goodness, you're going to be held account by the next generation, if not the adults, at a certain point. And so I don't know the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia, and I haven't had any clients lash out or be difficult in an angry way so far. But bottom line, from an advisor's point of view, who's interested in doing the best they can for their clients and making sure that they don't get into trouble under their licensing is to simply try and get it in writing and proceed slowly rather than too quickly. I certainly think if you were held to task later on on a client like this, just the fact that you have excellent notes and it sounds like it'll be something in the neighborhood of eight or nine hours of meetings before you've actually made recommendations, it would be hard to suggest that you haven't done your homework at least before you're putting any measures in place. I agree. I'm a belt and suspenders kind of a gal, Um, but that still doesn't stop people from getting upset and angry because mental illness, I think, will do that. Absolutely. And family members sometimes feel like somebody is self-interested or otherwise trying to take advantage of a parent. And, you know, it's hard to criticize that protective nature, although sometimes it's born out of greed by the family members as well. Now, Don, you had mentioned that you're started into the elder planning counselor designation as well. I'm wondering if you can chat a little bit about the decision to head down that path. I know you said you're just in early days with it, but is there anything you can talk about there with respect to this type of client? I think like any further education, I got my CFP a few years back and, um, you know, acquiring additional knowledge just gives you the confidence to speak to the profession that you're in. It also helps people who that you're about to deal with understand that you are a professional and you are bound by a code of ethics. And I'm hoping that the, the EPC will help me with additional confidence in this area with additional knowledge and also do the very same thing will help people who are coming to work with you for the first time understand that you are sensitive to the issues that older people face. So um, it's just good business and it's an area that interests me. I find people fascinating. That's a must for a financial advisor. I think if you don't find people fascinating and curious, it's really tough to sit down for those in-depth discussions you have to have. Maybe just one last question here, Don. We'll see where we get here. I'm wondering about any thoughts around capacity issues with younger clients. Is it ever something you've contemplated if you had a client who wasn't you know, clearly a senior? Have you ever considered that there might be capacity issues there as well? And what I specifically think about, I had a guy in a class a few years ago who seemed fine first thing in the morning, but by lunch, something had clearly gone wrong. He wasn't functioning properly. And it turns out that at least from indications that he gave afterwards, that it was just that he had taken the wrong medication that morning. I'm curious to know if it's something you've ever looked at with your younger clients. Oh, wow. In the number of years that I've been working with human beings, I find that it's really helpful to understand as much about them as possible. You know, there's people that just clearly don't understand anything to do with money or finance. So it's just not their thing. So you have to go almost as slowly with them as you might with a retiree. But there's also people that are diabetic and if they haven't eaten or, you know, they are depending on coffee or they don't do well on coffee. I think I just assume that people aren't always going to be at their best and or even if they are, that they're still not going to understand the arena in which I work. That's why they're here to see me is because they they could use a financial coach or some expertise. So I haven't run into an issue where I suspected a younger client is having diminished capacity, but um, 
just the quirks of human nature mean that I think best practices for working with retirees is also not a bad way to go with people who are younger that you wouldn't suspect would have these concerns. It's a great point you raise. A lot of times when I bring this up in class, advisors get their hackles up a little bit. They think that they're being attacked by the requirement to do a little bit of capacity assessment. But I think you raise a really strong point here, which is that if you're just meeting your basic obligations for a client, that you're probably doing some capacity assessment anyways. No, I would agree with you. Yeah, that's great, Don. That's a lot of quality stuff. And I think you really reinforce in your comments uh, the importance of just having sound financial planning practices. I really appreciate that. And thanks very much for joining us today, Don. Lots to deal with there. One of the things that I wanted to touch on here, so Dawn, actually just after this interview, sent me her draft version of her own trusted third party or third party contact form. And her intention is to actually carbon copy the third party in all of her client communications. And I think that's a fairly safe thing to do because what's going to happen then is you're not creating a triggering event where you have to pay attention for that. You're really using that third party as a backstop for every conversation that happens. I know some advisors will prefer to use the trusted third party as sort of a back pocket type of provision where you say, I'm not going to interact with that person until something happens. I think that's perfectly acceptable as well. I do think that you should have a policy here that says, when am I actually going to involve that trusted third party? Then the question comes about, do you have a trusted third party for every client? Or is it just a trusted third party for clients where there might be a capacity question? How do you make that determination? And of course, you want to make sure that you're not doing something here that might be seen as discriminatory or where asking the question sort of automatically implies that you're concerned about a loss of capacity, you could certainly see this situation where, say, a 70-year-old client, so lots of 70-year-olds are very, very well-possessed of their faculties and would have no question around capacity. So I could ask a 70-year-old about a trusted third party, and they say, well, why are you asking me that question? I've got everything good going on up here. I've got no problems. You say, yeah, don't worry, because I ask my 30-year-old clients the same question. And the 70-year-old feels like they're not being attacked. Derek talked about ageism in his interview, and we don't have any concerns maybe around ageism if we go that route. One of the suggestions that came up in the update 2019 package, and I thought it was a really good suggestion. This came from Arthur Fish, a lawyer out of Toronto, and he had talked about having a separate trusted third party or third party contact distinct from the power of attorney. And that way you avoid any conflict of interest where the trusted third party might actually see themselves in a position where they can artificially gain some influence through the power of attorney. I don't know if that's always necessary, but I think it is something to contemplate. Now, another issue that came up in the discussion with Don was around what are the confidentiality expectations? So what happens when a client has somebody come along with them, they're not yet identified as that trusted third party, they're not in any way recognized by any of the documentation you've done with this client to that point. I would suggest that the appropriate thing to do here 
is to politely ask that other party if you could have just 15 or 20 minutes with the client alone and to talk over what that person is doing there during that 15 or 20 minutes to say, you know, do you understand why that person is here? Are you going to have any sort of concerns about having them in the room? Is there any information that I should not share with that person? And I think by doing that, you reduce some of the concerns that might arise around elder abuse. Now, once you've gone through that conversation, and hopefully it's a perfectly harmless conversation, then you can bring that person back into the room, assuming the client has given you consent to share information. And that's where, if you have a process for this third-party contact, then you can just talk that person through that process. And now you don't have to worry about coming up with something to accommodate this client request. And I'm sure those of you that deal with older clients have seen that kind of thing. And actually, on the note of dealing with older clients, you hear both of the interviews here, discussions around the EPC, the Elder Planning Counselor designation. We talked about it on this podcast once before. The Elder Planning Counselor designation is quite valuable for folks who primarily deal or who have a lot of clients in that aging market. It's not a very technical designation. It doesn't appeal to my very technical nature, but it's really good in terms of understanding some of the core issues here without getting into the math. It focuses so strongly on the qualitative issues. Okay, lots to unpack in these two interviews. I hope that everybody's gotten some good value out of this. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College. bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, uh, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you will have to sign up. And you'll be able to sign up there, and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. This episode of the CE Podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Thanks very much for joining us today. I hope you can join us again in a couple weeks' time when we will hear from Kelly and Nathan, and we're going to talk about how we demonstrate value to our clients and how we make sure that they are engaged in the financial planning 
process. And I want to just comment about delayed episode production here right now. The transition at FPSC to FP Canada has put us back a little bit. And now I'm in the midst of exam prep season. It's a tough time to find a half hour to put together the extra content. So we're working our best to get on schedule here, but I know we're a little bit behind schedule. I appreciate everybody sticking with us. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day. bunch of people have a hand in producing this podcast. Joseph Tong takes care of our music and editing. Anthony Summers is responsible for tech support. Maria Nguyen takes care of all the CE applications to the various accrediting bodies. Marjorie Lewis takes care of certificates when the machine doesn't do it. Desiree Gretton Hicks and Penny Watt take care of our marketing, making sure that there are folks out there to listen to the podcast. Thanks to all those who help out. (laughs) 